Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams and our weekly newsletter with money off books and museum visits as well. Plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash we have ways. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Actung, actung. It's James Holland here on We Have Ways of Making You Talk. And this week we're doing another of our specials. This time to commemorate VJ Day, which falls on the 15th of August, which is this coming Saturday. Now, first up, we've got a two-part special. This is an interview with an extraordinary man, Robin Rowlands, who was there at literally everything that took place in Burma. He was there at the Battle of the Admin Box, which is took place in February 1944, which is when the British first kind of sort of really properly bested the Japanese. He was there at Kohima, part of the great Imphal battle, and he was there in the days of victory in 1945. He's a lovely fellow, and his memory is just absolutely astonishing. This is something I recorded um, a little while back, but um, I really think you're going to find this a massive treat. Anyway, here he is, Robin Rowlands. I was born in Northern Ireland. My father was in the regular army, uh, though his service was nearly always abroad. My mother had uh, joined the Queen Alexandra's nursing service, and they met around about 1919. They married in India, and my elder brother uh, was born in Lahore. Then my mother came home, and I was born in County Antrim. So then uh, I was... Um, Educated in Northern Ireland, went to a very small, very small grammar school. But I had a very good normal uh, education with the usual subjects. And then I went, uh, decided to read. My career was going to be in the law. I knew that from a fairly early age. Went up to Queen's and then the war came. And uh, it's very hard to describe to people who weren't there exactly what the atmosphere was at that time in the UK. The, uh, England was an armed camp with American soldiers and uh, British soldiers. And even in Northern Ireland, which had no conscription uh, for political reasons, the, uh, I joined the officers training corps at the university and the people were joining up. So in, you joined, did you join out of a sense of I joined there in, as, a, as a, a part of the officers' training corps and they were joining up and word came through that they were going to expand the Indian Army and the adjutant at the officers' training corps got hold of us one day in the drill hall and said, those of you who want to volunteer for India, put your names down now. And I volunteered for India because my father had told me all about India and I preferred the prospect of uh, serving in India rather than Salisbury Plain. 
So the time came and I did certificate A and B, which made me a cadet. And one day I got a telegram saying, report to uh, Colonel Potter for interview for the Indian Army. Went up to see Colonel Potter. He asked me a whole lot of questions. The object of his exercise was, is this man fit for the Indian Army or not? I never heard from him until 13th of December. And then it said, report to the Guards Depot at Caterham for passage to India and the Indian Army. And I was a cadet by now. And I said, I can't uh, move as quickly as that. It's too short notice. Well, you've got seven days. So I, I, got, I took seven days, got my future organized at home, leaving my mother at home. And off I went and reported to the Guards Depot at Caterham, 300 other cadets, all with about, most of them had a year's service or maybe two years and they had volunteered. So we, we got on to the, uh, sailed on the Britannic from Greenock on the 6th of January, 1942. And we had eight weeks at sea and we went round the Cape, landed at Bombay. What was it like to arrive in Bombay? Well, it was, everything had happened. It was so different. I mean, it was, I got the, uh, I can, the, my chief feature of Bombay, of which we were only there for four days was, I got the most horrendous headache that I've ever had in my life. It really was a migraine. It was a real shocker. I don't know what gave it to me. It passed away eventually, but it was three days of absolute agony. Anyway, I went, we were at Mauer, and that was the officer training school. At Mauer, a six months course in, as a junior leader, cadet, had to learn to speak the language, Urdu. I can still speak a word or two of it. <laughs> and uh, then I was commissioned. And at the officers' training school, we um, were told to write down the names of three Indian regiments that we would prefer to join, any one of which. I put down the Frontier Force Rifles, the Raj Putana Rifles, and the Frontier Force Regiment. What made you choose those? Nothing really. I'd read something about them, but I didn't know very much about them. And it was a, what I would call a long shot, which one I'd get. The Raj Patana rifle sounded rather exotic and might be a good thing to be a, in it serving with the Raj Patana rifles. But actually, uh, when it came out, where was I posted? Typical army, the Royal Deccan Horse the cavalry, Indian cavalry. And the reason for that was that they were shedding their horses and recruiting the tank corps people, armored corps, and they were getting tanks. And they were got grants and lees. And uh, I learned, I had a great time with the Deccan horse. I, it really was a, a great experience, just India all over being uh, in, in the, and my squadron commander was a man called Alec Harper, who was a great, <laughs> he was one of the best polo players in India, and he was a tall, lean, lanky man. And somewhere I have a picture of the Royal Deccan Horse polo team, and it is really something else to see those four polo players. It's just, talk about the Raj, that was it, personified. So you had a good social life? 
had a good social life there, definitely. And uh, Alec used to tour the uh, lions every day on his horse. He still kept his horse, but we were learning to drive Grant tanks. And uh, I learned to drive Grant tanks. And the colonel was a man called Tony Sanger, and he was supposed to be one of the best polo players in India. A great man. I met people that I'd never dreamed of meeting, and it was a great time. Until one day, Alec came to me and he said, look, he said, I've had word from uh, GHQ in India that you're going to be posted. I said, I don't want to be posted. I want to stay with the deck and horse. And um, he said, well, I'm very sorry. There's nothing I can do about it, he said. He said, but don't worry, he said. You'll probably get into the war quicker than I will. So I was posted to the Deccan, uh, to, to the Punjab Regiment, the 2nd Punjab Regiment. And do you ever know why you were posted? I think the, re uh, the better question might be why I was ever uh, sent to the Deccan horse. The answer to that is because they were short of officers with any driving experience at all. And they wanted to build up their officer content. In the, in the regiment. Why I was sent is only GHQ know what we were marked. I'm quite certain that the 7th Battalion, which I joined, had been marked for action in Burma because we did a, about six months there and then I went. Uh, I, we, the battalion was posted to Ranchi. This is now 1943, exactly. Yes, it was 1942 I was with the Deccan Horse, you're quite right. And in January 1943, I was posted to Madras, where the 7th, 2nd Punjab Regiment were then operating. Uh, what sort of training did I get there? Not in jungle warfare, nothing like that at all. It was just ordinary infantry training. And we used to have to do patrols on the beach at Madras and northwards in case there arrived a Japanese convoy. What we could do about it is a difficult question to ask. <laughs> but anyway, that's what happened. So then you were sent up to Ranchi and that's... Then, that then, then Ranchi. And that's jungle training. And that, that's it. That was that's where the training really began for four months. Joined the 7th Division, who was commanded by Lieutenant General Frank Mservey. Uh, and it was, it was a very unusual division, really, in many ways. It was more of a family. My friend John Shipster and I, were, we were on an exercise uh, in Ranchi one night. The monsoon was at its height, and we were walking back to our lines on the road, the two of us, rather bedraggled and a bit uh, morale not very high. And a staff car pulled up with a flag at the front. It was Frank Mosservi. He said, what is your unit? We saluted very smartly and said, seven seconds, but I'll get in, he said. And he took us back to our lines. And that was what, that was, he was a very popular general, Frank Mosservi. He was great. So uh, what, t tell me briefly, Robin, about the training, what you were actually doing in Ranchi. I mean, what, what, what sort of form did jungle training take? Jungle training took the form of firing live ammunition. Uh, jungle, um, uh, a very tough exercise it was in the jungle with uh, company movements, attacking a hill and live ammunition and all the rest of it. Um, 
there was a great story told of a, a Templar who was a general coming out and saying, addressing a crowd of people about the severity of these jungle training exercises. And he ended up by saying, you'll do this course and you'll do it well. If you don't do it, you'll be rotten men, rotten to the core, and failures in civil life as well. So that was a good incentive to, to try to get through, do your best. <laughs> so, Were you doing patrol work as well? We were doing learning to do patrol work, which was going to be very fruitful down in our cab. Uh, we did that and... Um, Camouflage? Yes, absolutely. And we did, uh, I did mortar pertaining. I did, I was taken, I was a lieutenant by the time I got, I had the amazing rank of lieutenant. And I was taken from my battalion and sent to the King's Own Scottish Borderers uh, to do training in the three-inch mortar. As a lieutenant lined up with the uh, private soldiers <laughs> and was instructed by a sergeant for about a month. It taught me about three-inch water. It was quite interesting, really. And, of course, we we then did uh, just before... I think it was just before that, I went on one of the best courses that I had ever been on, and that was a company weapons course at, at Sorger. I mention that because it really did help. It was enormously good. A very, very good course. It taught you about all about the rifle, the Bren gun, uh, the three-inch mortar, the two-inch mortar, and everything. And by the time you left that course, which was six weeks, you really knew your weapons backwards, which we were going to need. Because I realise now that before I did that course, I didn't know an awful lot about the Bren gun or any of these. So it was a really good course. So, I, sorry, by the time you actually get to the Arakan, presumably you must feel... Pretty well trained, don't you? We were pretty well trained because of what had happened a, at Ranchi and what had happened on that course. And, and because of the training at Ranchi, when we got to Arakan, we didn't know what to expect. There was a conference in Ranchi with the brigadiers and the officers, and they told us what it was like, but you don't know these things until you arrive there. When we got to Arakan, this was in uh, September 1943. And we went to a place called Bali Bazaar down there. They, we, marked, we took a train from Chittagong to a place called Dohazari. And from Dohazari to Bali was 80 miles. And we had to march that and did 20 miles a day. It was the toughest, one of the toughest marches that I'd ever done. It really was in blinding heat. It was so bad that Jock Little, who was uh, in charge of us, said, look, I think we'll march at night and sleep during the day, which is what we did. Arrived in the Arakan, and it was... The position in Arakan was that the Brits were waiting, the British forces were waiting in Arakan, planning to hit the Japanese on the beginning of the campaign to expel them from Burma. And there was one of the two ways of doing it was to attack them in the Arakan. And uh, we were got into Bali Bazaar, spent two or three nights there in September, and then gradually moved forward. 
to what later became the admin box at Simswear, a place called Simswear. On the Arakal is divided into, as you know, the Mayu range that's on the east and west. My division, our division, was on the western side, and the 5th Division on the east. That was Razabil and down there. Uh, and uh, the only connection between them was this pass called the Nyakidok Pass, which was a marvellous feat of engineering. And they were preparing that for tanks, of course. And did you cross over on the Nyakidok? Yeah, we did. We did a reconnaissance of it very soon after we arrived in Arakan to see what the, the terrain was like. We, we were going to be on the east side. The whole division was going to be, three brigades. And they formed a reconnaissance party, of which I was one. I don't know why I was selected, but I was on it. And we marched over the pass. It wasn't quite fit for tanks at that stage, but they were going to improve it. And we went on over there. We had a look at some of the old vehicles from previous attacks that had been made were still lying in the jungle. And we came back. And uh, I, my first kind of action was with A Company. John Shipson was commanding. I was his second in command. And we were pushed forward to a place under the command of the KOSBs, the King's Own Scottish Borders, just above Mongdor. And I was told to take a patrol out and find out <laughs> how many Japs there were in Mongdor. And uh, I got ready to go, and then you need a lot of luck sometimes in wartime. <laughs> Word came through that I didn't have to go after all. They knew how many Japs there were in Mongdor. But that was the first inkling I had, and it really was a little bit scary. And so there that you had the situation at that stage. The Japs, on their part, were preparing to do what they always intended to do, invade India. And this was one of the routes. Uh, the Brits, on the other hand, were doing the exact opposite, preparing to attack the Japanese and kill them all and get Burma back. And then, and I did quite a few fighting patrols. We did one, uh, uh, give you some idea what the terrain was like. Um, one of our companies got involved in an action at a place called Hambone Hill and they got shot up and there were some wounded uh, and they came back. It was, it was only a very strong platoon. The uh, colonel came to me and said, I want, you'd better take a patrol out, he said, down to Hambone and see if there are any wounded there. And I got myself ready, no time to make any plans at all, took this patrol out down this jungle path, and I thought, where, where ought I to be in this single file thing? Ought I to be out in front, leading, or ought I to be further back, commanding, in case we hit the Japanese? There wasn't much time to think about that, and then I ended up by putting myself at number 10 in the single file. The moon was bright, there wasn't a sound anywhere. And I was just hoping that we weren't ambushed. Well, we weren't. Got down, looked across, saw Hambone, no wounded. And um, all was quiet on the Japanese side, really it was. 
came back and I was told to wait outside the perimeter. Don't come in because our people will think you are Japanese. So I had to, and I was absolutely frozen. It really was completely freezing that night, the full moon and all the rest of it. So there was Arakan, now that, that, that went on and I did quite a few fighting patrols down there. And when you're on one of these patrols, I mean, nerves taut, I mean, you were completely alert and on edge all the time. You had to be, you were very, you were intent on doing what you were supposed to do, but hoping to goodness that you didn't meet any Japanese because we'd had no experience of them whatever. We just didn't had hand-to-hand uh, -hand fighting at that stage and you were hoping there weren't any Japs. But if they were, you had to make some sort of plan and I would have to deploy and try and command if I could. But it was all going to be very new, the whole thing. And uh, that's the way it was. I mean, now, did you know about, I mean, rumours of Japanese ferocity and all that kind of stuff? Was that? Oh yeah, we knew about that. I mean, it was always present. With, Certainly to my mind, speaking personally, I didn't want to be taken uh, prisoner by the Japs because they did not treat them very well at all. There was a young chap called Larry Hanforth who had been in the Queen's University officers training with me, but he went to India before I did. He was commissioned into the 14th, 4th, 15th Punjab Regiment and Larry went down into the Arakan with the 4th 15th and he was on a fighting patrol and he was captured by the Japanese. And they'd, they crucified poor old Larry, really. Now that was very present. And the information... Did you hear about this? Yes, we did, because they had V-Force in Arakan and the information came back from the locals. And we knew about this, you see, about that. And the V-Force was a, a very special, yes, a very special unit in Arakan, commanded by Gretton, a man called Gretton. And it was, um, shall I say, um, a very secret affair of us doing patrols and uh, commando-like stuff, you know. And so it went on and uh, so we knew about the Japanese cruelty and it really wasn't a very pleasant existence without the thought of it. But at the same time, though you were in action, you were new, and people have often asked me what I thought about it. Well, the dominating thought was to do what you had to do, get on with it and do it, and hoping that nothing dreadful would happen. That was it. But the main thing was to do what you were asked to do, especially with troops. And what about the conditions? I mean, the conditions very, yeah, very. We had to take uh, what they called uh, meprocrine tablets at six o'clock every night to stave off malaria. And even though I was doing that, I did get malaria twice, uh, once in Arakan and once much later on at Kohima. That was a three-week absence, of course. To, to put that right, you did it with quinine and all the rest of it. But um, the conditions were very, very hot, very hot indeed. Once the monsoon ended in September, the days were blistering hot. And I frequently had to take patrols out. But the picture, the general overall picture, 
was you had the two sides waiting, each with their own intention. The Japs to come up and go into India, us to attack them and drive them out. So you would have an attacking force, that was the Japs, in which case we would have to defend, or if we attacked first, the Japs would be defending. Well, it all came good on the night of the 4th of February, 1944, when, as you know, you've done it all, you know it, uh, they came up on the left flank, between, the, between our left flank and the Calapanzin River. They decided to strike first, 7,000 of them. And they spread, they hit Tong Bazaar, they hit Bali Bazaar, they cut the pass, and we were surrounded. And there was absolute chaos from there. Our companies were spread all over the place. With, I was with A Company, uh, and we were uh, on a certain point. And we'd just been pulled back into reserve, our brigade. I was, this, we were part of 89 Brigade. And we had been pulled back from the front line about a mile uh, because we were going to get ready to attack at Butidang and Mongdol. But the Japs struck first and they came up silently. It is reported that someone heard the clank of harness and mules, but no one, they didn't expect the Japs. And they, they've got to say, we were surrounded before we knew it. They had told us are, and we had to hold our positions. And uh, when we woke up in the morning of the 5th, the Japs were all over, the, they were occupying the place, but they were attacking. And uh, from then on, for the next three weeks, that's exactly what happened. So we, held our, we were held our position wherever. If we were on a hill, say Boomerang or, or whatever the name was, held and they attacked. And they cut the pass and they got right over onto the other side, the Japs did, to a place called Weybin. Now what happened at Weybin, I'm not sure, but they, they held it for a few days. But I think the, some of the forces of the 5th Division who were on that side dealt with the Japs. So what were you doing all this time? I mean, we were just uh, uh, dug in foxholes, dubbing foxholes, and occupying uh, trenches on the hills, waiting for them to attack. That's and right. You weren't attacking yourself. No. And you weren't. I mean, were you counter? I was with. I was with the mortar platoon at um, not battalion headquarters, but near it. But the great thing about uh, the Arakan operation was you didn't know really what was going on. You really didn't. You didn't have a wireless set, maybe at the company level, uh, or if you did, the colonel would say, "The Japanese have got all round us, and uh, be prepared to move to such and such a place, uh, and make sure your men have a cup of tea before they go." It was very, very tense, and and lack of knowledge. They were all round us, and we didn't know what was happening. And someone, um, the notes for the battalion history, which I wrote the battalion history long after the, uh, sometime after the war, there is very little in that history of the Arakan operation. Why? Because no one knew what was happening. They really didn't. They couldn't say that A Company did this, B Company did that. 
It was just a question of sitting there, just waiting for them to attack, and which they did, and and uh, they cut the pass, of course, and that meant we could get no tanks over. But in the end, the thing that enabled us to defeat the Japs in Arakan, and why the Japs lost, was the old Dakota aircraft. <laughs> you probably know that, but anyway, uh, they were able to drop supplies. Uh, and they dropped ammunition and food to us. Sometimes it went astray and the Japs got it, but by and large, the supplies came in and directly onto the position. And without that, we I don't know what we would have done. We, we were surrounded. We had no contact with the west side at all, other than by radio. But certainly, because they cut the pass, there was no other way into Arakan. And you knew that you just had to hold firm. And not That's right. We didn't know what was going on at all. You just had to hold your position for the Japs to attack. My friend John Shipster got very quite badly attacked persistently on a feature and uh, he was wounded twice and uh, ended up, but he was badly wounded actually, but there was no way he could get out because there was no way for him to be evacuated. But he eventually, he continued on fighting. He got a very, very good DSO for it. There's no question about it. He, it was a very good, for a young man aged 21 years, <laughs> in command of a company. So anyway, uh, that was it. And eventually, out of the 7,000 Japs that came into Arakan, after February, March, by the end of March, they had lost 7,000 killed, the Japs and they simply withdrew them back to their own lines. And now the rest of it was, I then got, just after that, I got a go of malaria and was evacuated to um, Chittagong and didn't join the battalion again until I think it was the beginning of May. So the whole of April, I was out of action. And during that time, uh, the nature of the Arakan company uh, boded pretty ill because the, the colonel uh, was at battalion headquarters and overnight a for some small force of Japanese got on top of them. He was on high, the colonel was on high ground, but the Japanese got on top of the feature above him and they had to be cleared. And he took six men with him, the colonel did on his own, to clear these uh, uh, Japs off and was killed immediately. We lost our CO just like that. That's Arakan. He, that had to be done. We're now going to take a short break, um, but do join us in a minute. So welcome back to my conversation I had with Robin Rowlands in this first part. It's just chance, isn't it? Just chance. It really is. It's just chance. And I suppose on the whole, I, as it proved later, even at Kohima, I had a, a great stroke of luck in that way. Later on, I can... I mean, in, in the Arakan, where you've got this very, it's very close country, isn't it? There's hills and jungle and all that. I mean, you, <laughs> not only do you not hear anything, you can't see an awful lot. So the whole thing must have been very... Very confusing picture. And at our level of command, not a, well, of a company commander, 
you didn't know what was going on elsewhere. You really didn't know where, where your nearest help was, company or anything. Once the admin box was relieved, Messavi continued with his aggressive operation, didn't he? There was an attack on... Yes, sir, well, yeah, we went, we went forward we then. That's quite right, we did. Yeah. Yes. No, I wasn't involved in that, no. That was happened during, during the end of March and April. Uh, we did. But we lost, we lost eight officers from our battalion in Arakan. Two of them were snipers. Uh, John Shipster and Ashley Ewans had taken a feature called Hambone at, by a two-company attack at night. On, in the morning, they were standing, holding a map, surveying the situation. And Ewans was shot dead by a sniper. That's how cat. Immediately, the shipster got a bullet through the throat. But as the official report said, it wasn't fatal. <laughs> it was skin deep. Chance. Simple as that, really. And that sniper. Ian Brown, another officer, was walking back to battalion headquarters with the colonel. He was killed by a sniper. So that's two officers. Two of them were killed in an air attack, and two of them, Harry Oakes and one other, was killed in uh, a direct attack on a Japanese position. And that's where we were attacking and the Japs were defending, and he was killed. So our officer strength was diminished in Arakan very much. And we went, we had made some ground down, but then the Kohima situation arose, unknown to us, of course. We didn't know what was going on. So you rejoined the battalion at this point? I, I rejoined the battalion at the end of April, yes, I did, from, from that. I'd been sent back with malaria, and I had command for a short period of a jungle training reinforcement camp at Chittagong, and that I commanded uh, for about a month or so, I think it was, something like that. Then I rejoined them just in time to hear that the battalion are pulling out and we've been ordered up. I don't think they told us where we were going, but anyway, we were pulled out. And it came to be known that we were going to Kohima. I had no idea what was going on up there at all. Honestly, as a junior officer, we, we didn't. How did you get there? I was just going to say, I, it's vague now, but I do know we, we got the river boat back to, back to Chittagong and I then think we went up the Brahmaputra. We went on a train, I think, to a boat station on the Brahmaputra, then up the Brahmaputra to Gohati, and then I think we were motorised to Dimapur after that, where we arrived on the 6th of May, and then up to Kohima. I suppose that move took us all of a week, mostly, uh, part of 89 Brigade. But by then, we were so depleted in officer strength that we, be, we were designated the Divisional Recce Battalion. Uh, we lost our CO and got a new one. Company commanders, two of them killed and two wounded. So we were really under strength. Not really a strong fighting unit at that time when we went up. I was an HQ company in charge of the mortars and the mules and all the others ragtag and bobtail. We were in Dimapur, which is the base, for a few days. I was ordered to take a, a company of mules, about 40 mules of our battalion, up to Dimapur. I was ordered to march at night. 
I left Dimapur at nine o'clock, got to the edge of the town, and suddenly, away to my left, about a hundred metres away, was the sound of music. And I halted the mules, the whole lot, the whole company. I went over to investigate, and who was the music? Vera Lynn, singing the song of the concert. And I still listened to her voice inside, I didn't go into the building, it was a big hangar-like building, a big building. And she was singing all the songs that everybody knows. But I had a company of mules waiting and they didn't know what the devil I was doing. And to my utter regret, I had to rejoin them and go up to Kohima. And I got, it's 40 miles from Dimapur, 45 actually, up to, and I think the first, we marched 20 miles that night or something, and then bivouacked halfway up. Must have been amazing to hear that. That was amazing, amazing to me. I just couldn't believe that. I didn't even know Vera Lynn was in India at that time. I didn't know at all. But absolutely true. I very, I very nearly wrote to her, but I never got around to it. But I did buy her book, her autobiography, and it's in it's in that that she was in 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 Dimapur. She wanted to go up to Kohima, but they said no. It's too dangerous. You'll never make it up there. But uh, I suppose so you only took two and a bit days to get. To... Yeah, two days, and then and then it was up. And our role in Kohima... But did you go straight to Kohima, or were you in Jotsoma to start off with? Jotsoma to start off with. We were there with the mules for a day or two, until it was decided uh, what was happening. Now, this was the, I think, about the 9th of May, this was, we're talking about now. And what was the position in, Ko in Kohima at that time? The position was the Japanese... It was really, we were up there at the 7th Division to take back all the features that the Japanese had occupied. The critical one was one called Garrison Hill. And Garrison Hill was the gateway to India. That's where the tennis court is, uh, was and is now where the uh, war memorial is and all the rest of it. And it, it's very strategic and they fought across and the reason the tennis court became famous was they were actually chucking grenades across the tennis court at each other. Well, when we got up, I was sent, we were occupying Treasury. The role of my battalion was to occupy the features that had been captured by the First Queens, uh, the other regiments of uh, 33 Brigade, who had been sent up. And their role, the 4th First Gurkhas, was to attack Jail Hill, DIS, GPT Ridge, Naga Village, and all the rest of it. So you were in uh, Jotsama, and you just there we waited, and we were then moved up, and we knew that we were going to uh, uh, have a, an occupying role. That is, uh, the, any features which had been captured. It's, the reality was that we had lost so many officers uh, that we were not really capable of being an active battalion in a war in a, in a battle situation at that time we could do patrolling we could do that but we could not make a frontal attack so and we were aware of the reconnaissance regiment so we were in kohima uh, in that role on the uh, 6th of june i think it was the day d-day in europe i was on treasury hill in a slit trench and our forces wheeled a 5.5 uh, gun onto the, my feature, just a few feet away from where my 
slit trench wars. Across the valley, over open sites, was a feature called the very last feature church knoll, about maybe a mile away, whatever, maybe less. And they fired a shell, a huge shell, 5.5 shell, over open sites every minute for at least five hours. And then the, the 4th-15th attacked it, and the Japs, they failed to take it. And it wasn't until much later where another story, which is really worth telling because it happens to be absolutely true, I got this from the horse's mouth. The commanding officer of the 4th of the 1st Gurkhas was a man called Derek Horsford, Lieutenant Colonel Derek Horsford. And he went to the Brigadier Loftus Tottenham and he said, I think I'm going to go in on the flank on this one from Hunter's Hill and try and get it from the flank. And the Brig said, I don't give a damn how you do it. Just do it or I'll sack you. So that was the orders for the 4th 1st. They did a night attack on the flank, Hunter's Hill, and they took, that was the last feature to fall, and he took it. And Derek Horsford went on to have a very successful career in the army, became a brigadier, and he eventually became a major general, and uh, that was it. But I can remember that so well. Uh, the two frontal attacks failed. The Japs were adept at digging 15 feet deep. Those shells that had been fired at by the 5.5 gun made very little impression on them. Mind you, it's true to say from, from what we know now, they must have been starving at that stage. Their morale must have been very low. But and you were still getting food on Treasury Hill, like. Oh yes, absolutely. Absolutely. And uh, Kohima was absolutely in ruins. And well, the killing ground had gone on before that, really, just before the, the middle of May. Two, to, two parts to the battle. The one in which uh, the Japanese, who were expecting a blitzkrieg, their orders were, you will go to Kohima, you will attack the defending forces there, you will destroy them, and when you uh, have destroyed them, you will march through to Dimapur. And Sato had said to his commander, Mutaguchi, but what about supplies? Uh, what about food, ammunition? You get all the food you want in Dimapur once you have taken and captured and killed all the enemy in Kohima. Well, no plan B. They had no plan B. And eventually, as we know, that's why they lost the battle. And uh, at that is really, I think, why they lost. And the last feature to fall was uh, Church Knoll. And then I was back in my... Sorry, go on. Well, I was just going to ask you, I mean, just to go back your time in your foxhole in Treasury. Yeah, Treasury. Yeah. It's starting to rain. Yeah, it was. It was. And in addition to that, I got the most horrible thing on my back, uh, a, a boil. It was more than a boil, it was something else. It really was painful and it was suppurating. And they had a thing called M&B 693 then, which was a forerunner of penicillin. And that was the only thing that, that helped it. But it made it very uncomfortable. It was, uh, it was pretty miserable. But we were in luxury compared to the Japs. They must have been absolutely frightful. 
But you must have been wet all the time. We were, absolutely. Oh, wet through the skin, but warm because the, the climate was temperate. It wasn't cold, not at, uh, even at 5,000 feet, which is what Kohima was. The conditions were, were very, very bad. The, the monsoon was at its height then. Kohima itself was just about like that famous photograph of the battle of uh, Mons. The trees were split in two. The stench of dead bodies was horrible all over the place, unburied. And uh, altogether, it was, it was um, a dreadful sight. Um, then uh, the personal thing that I got, I was, had been appointed. The colonel had formed what he called, the new colonel had formed what he called a guerrilla platoon, which was 40 men with double the quantity of arms that the normal platoon had. We had Bren guns, we had waters, we had all sorts of heavily armed thing. The object being to be, have a, a fast-moving fighting force to attack and find out small positions. And I got word to go on detachment to 114 Brigade after Church Knoll. I went down the Jessamy track and up to a place called Chuckabama Ridge. And I reported to the Brigadier Dinwiddie, who was commanding 114 Brigade, and he said, look, he said, you see that hill there, pointing to the hill about a mile away? I want you to go off there with your platoon and find out if there are any Japs on it. I want you to, don't attack it, but I want you to let off everything you've got, mortars, Bren guns, rifles, grenades, everything, and report back and see if there are any Japs. They, we don't know if there are any Japs on it. So I set off with my platoon with a half-baked, plan. I said, now, if we're attacked, we just spread out and that's all we can do. Got halfway there when a runner came from behind and said, saluted and said, you are to return immediately. There are no Japs on the hill. <laughs> Luck. <laughs> so I came back and that was a pretty strong signal that the Japanese had left Kohima now that must have been about towards the end of June. And within a week, I was appointed commanding A Company of my battalion. And I was told to report to Brigadier Loftus Tottenham. Orders had come through from the British High Command when they realized that the Japs had left Kohima. And the effect of the, those orders were this. You will pursue the retreating Japanese as far as the Chinmun River. You will seek them out, and when you find them, you will destroy them. And the Chinmun River is? It was 80 miles away, maybe 100, something yeah. like that. And they had come in from the Chinmun all by different jungle paths. So in, uh, at the end, uh, at the beginning of June, I was appointed defence company for Loftus Totten's 33 Brigade which consisted of the 1st Queens, the Assam Rifles, and the Assam Regiment. And we went down to a place called Maram, which is, my guess is it's about 20 miles south of, of Kohima. And we congregated there, a whole brigade, with about 900 mules. And if you turned your back 
to the mountain and looked across the valley, there was a track leading up into the jungle. That's the track we were going to take. The monsoon was at its height. And uh, we set off. And uh, the first thing that had to be done was we had to ford the Irrel River in the valley below. And the engineers had done a marvellous job on that. They had enabled us, got it. We crossed that and started to march. And it was all, there were no, no tanks, no vehicles, nothing, just marching soldiers. But, oh, they had one company of mountain gunners, 25th Mountain Regiment, Indian Army, Royal Artillery, very smart, and they were there. And uh, three days into the march, you'd march at night and then bivouac on a, on a high ground. Uh, three days, the first of the retreating Japanese were found lying beside the track, absolutely. Uh, you could smell the thing before you arrived. I can remember vividly taking my handkerchief out and looking, uh, smelling that and knowing that there were dead bodies lying ahead. And they were a frightful sight. They'd been, some of them were mere skeletons, white, washed white by the monsoon. Most of them had died of starvation. Their bellies sworn, uh, swollen in a very grotesque way. Others eaten by wild animals and insects. It was a horrible sight. Hence the title, Road of Bones, it really, and it was. That was a living example of it. And there they were, and they, they suffered dreadfully. And we marched on and on. We never got, we did, our object was a place called Ukrul. And we were going to meet up with the rest of Seven Div coming up from Imphal. That was the point. We got to Ukrul the famous place where the Japanese had hoped to get their supplies. And when they got there on the way back, there were no supplies. We took it over, the Japs, uh, the Brits took over Ukrul, and we marched on towards the Chinwen. But it, by then, we realised it was hopeless. There's no point. Orders came through to Loftus you don't go to the Chinmen, you've seen most of them, they've been killed and they've got, the rest of them have gone. And that's when the campaign ended, down to Imphal, and got trucks back to Kohima. And that was the end of the Kohima battle. But I'll never, as long as I live, forget those Japanese bodies lying by that track. They were in a dreadful state. But the courage they were cruel, but they had also tremendous courage. And I think it was part of the doctrine of uh, whatever samurai they'd been brought up with to die in battle for the emperor that drove them. We wouldn't, un we wouldn't understand it really from our point of view. On the level of fanaticism, it was really great. Well, that's all we've got time for today with Robin, but please do tune in tomorrow for more of his amazing story of his time out in Burma and uh, North East India in 1944-45. Cheerio.